0: I think our planet in, in general, I'm not just talking about Canada, I'm talking about, I believe that if you probably went into every household within uh, North America, for sure, and said, in the home, you'd walk in and say, do you, do you have anyone in your family or yourself that's dealing with some type of an addiction problem? I, I believe somebody in the home would raise their hand. So I think that this is a, this is a vast... Uh, pandemic that we're dealing with.
1: That was Brant Myers, former NHL enforcer with a mean left hand. And now he is an author as well of a book called Painkiller, a memoir of big league addiction. And this is the Up My Hockey podcast. With Jason Padol. Hello there, and welcome back to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Podolan. I am your host, Jason Podolan, and this is episode number 56. And today, our guest is Brant Myers. Brant Myers was a teammate of mine back in 1996 with the Spokane Chiefs. He got traded from the Lethbridge Hurricanes, and he came with a big reputation for a big left hand. And somebody to be feared uh, in the Eastern Division, and uh, true to form, uh, Brant came in six foot four, you know, two hundred fifteen, two hundred twenty pounds. Had a devastating left hand, uh, but he was also a heck of a hockey player. And he had a career year that year when it came to points; he had over a point a game, uh, and was a big addition to our team. But for me, he was impactful in the sense that he became somebody that I almost wanted to be like. And I mentioned that in this episode. He was, you know, he was a good-looking guy, he was confident. Uh people wanted to be around him. He he made people laugh. He knew how to laugh. He could laugh at himself. Uh like to have a good time. He was good with the ladies. Uh he was just a good team team guy. He was uh he was kind of a bit larger than life and uh had a had a big personality and, and was just a ton of fun. And and seeing what happened with him um, after his time with uh, Spokane there and what happened with his career and and following it in his book, which is what we're talking about, Painkiller, um, a memoir of big league addiction, Brandt's life was on a spiral. And, uh, you know, it started in junior, and that's where the book starts. I mean, I didn't see firsthand... Um, you know signs or hints of what was to come for him um maybe thankfully uh because we are all a product of our environment in one way or another and perhaps if uh you know if Brant was into some things that maybe he shouldn't have been into in Spokane and maybe if I was there then you know who knows what that looks like you know uh it's crazy, actually, what part of that reflection process is, you know, for me, and we talk about it in this podcast, is, you know, how people end up where they end up and, you know, what forces and what uh, factors uh, make us arrive in certain at certain destinations. And uh, anyways, Brent's very honest and very accountable in his book. Um, and his book is one that you takes you on a journey where, you know, I and I, I I mentioned in the podcast you know I'm like man I wanted to I wanted to fight you a couple times in the book I wanted you know when there was times I wanted to hug you there was times I wanted to help you and and uh I think that's a human aspect of reading reading branch story is you know the depths that he went to you know to get to where he's at today which today is sober for 13 years and uh which is today being the best father he can to his daughter Chloe, and and to helping others uh, learn from his from his story. And for those of you who don't know, he was and still is the only player to be banned for life from the NHL. And uh, he went through the substance abuse program. I think there's four stages of it, and uh, you know he went through four of them. Ended up getting banned for life. Uh, was broke, uh, lost millions, had no job uh you know had no self esteem essentially no self respect and pushed off the bottom and uh and has made something of himself and uh and this interview is a real honest account of that and uh the redemption of Brant Myers is something that whether you have experienced addiction yourself um even on a first degree within your family um personally you know, on on a, on a personal level or never experienced it at all to try and be empathetic and walk through the shoes and, and to get behind a story where somebody perseveres and prevails and comes out on the other end of the tunnel. Um, (laughs) a better man, a better human and, uh, And with the perspective that he's now able to help other people, I think is something that's super admirable and I'm proud of him. And uh, it's heavy stuff. It's really heavy stuff. It was an an interview that um, I was excited to have, yet I was nervous to have it as well. Um, For reasons that, yeah, I mean, you don't, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Um, I don't know what's okay to ask. I don't know what's okay to talk about. Uh, I don't know if there's any rules about it but I tried to keep it as real as I could and as curious as I could to me and, and be as supportive as I could to Brant and his story and, and keep it, uh, as human as possible. And I think that there is so many lessons, um, for all of us, which I mentioned, uh, you know, during the podcast in Brant's honesty and in his vulnerability. And again, in the redemption, which I love, you know, for me, it was five times, I think for Brant and rehab and, uh, and for lack of a better word, the fifth time worked, you know, he says he's always fighting, fighting the addicted Brant Myers that never leaves, but he's been sober 13 years. And if that's his intention, when he wakes up every day and he gets through that day, and if he stays sober, he's done a great job and good things are going to happen. Um, that's something to celebrate, you know, and if you do have somebody in your life right now that uh, is going through something, or if you're going through something, uh, I believe in second chances. I believe in third chances. I believe in fourth chances. It's hard to be that person who's giving the chances. And Brad says he burnt, I mean, Brent says he, uh, you know, burnt a lot of bridges there and he let some people down. But sometimes that's the way it goes. And, um, you know, it is what it is. So let's let's have empathy for the people in our lives. Uh, let's try and forgive. Let's try and help. And, uh, yeah, this is just a real honest discussion uh, about addiction, about you know, trying to overcome that addiction and that disease and, uh, being a parent, what that means, being a coach, being a role model, uh, being an example. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in this. Uh, it is a sober, it is a sober interview, um, for lack of a better word there. Um, but it's a good one and I'm super grateful for Brent for coming on to share. I'm super grateful to help him with his message. Uh, painkiller again is the name of the book. Uh, I think, I think it is something that you should probably read whether, like I said, whether you have addiction in your life or not. I think, uh, having that lens and being able to access what's in those pages, you never know when you might need it, or you might be able to recommend it, or you might be able to use something from it, um, for someone in your life. So we will talk here. I'll give you the interview with Brent Myers. It's a uh, 90 minutes of, uh, of raw honesty and, um, uh, and yeah. I, uh, it's a conversation that I think I needed. I've already reflected on it and I I think I'll continue to reflect on it. Uh, I hope we did the book justice and I hope, uh, I was able to ask questions that allowed Brant to talk about, um, you know, his life and his journey and what's important to him now in a way that's eloquent and that he can be proud of. So without further ado, I bring you my interview with Brant Myers. All right, we are live. This is episode 56 of the Up My Hockey podcast. Uh, we have the pleasure of having in Mr. Brant Myers. Uh, Brant and I played in Spokane together in 93, 94. was where we first crossed paths and uh, have stayed in touch through the years. And uh, as you know from the intro, uh, the author of this amazing book right here called uh, Painkiller. Uh, which i have read which was a prerequisite by my by my buddy here that i had to read the thing cover to cover if i was to talk to him so i'm like all right that's demanding but i can do it i can do it and uh, and i'm glad you made me do it so brent um welcome to the podcast and uh i'm excited interested nervous to see where this whole conversation goes yeah jason it's been uh probably a long
0: time coming man since we've got together and uh you know, we had a lot of laughs and spoke, but we're talking <laughs> a couple decades ago. <laughs> We've changed a little bit since then, but on that, it's all, it's all good to do with you today.
1: Sweet. Um, yeah, man, like what a ride, you know, and I know part of this, and that was one of the issues, issues the wrong word. One of my thought processes with this conversation was after reading the book is like, wow, I mean, there's a lot of heaviness in there. You know, there's a there's a lot of real life heaviness, um, and in reading, and there's also redemption, right? Which I put on there, which I think is the beautiful part of this whole thing. Uh, I'm definitely a believer in second chances. In your case, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, right? You know, what I mean, which is which is awesome, and I want to get into that. But just saying, like, w- one of the things that I thought was going to be interesting is how can we frame this for my audience, right? Like, how can we how can we talk about this story in in the vein and in the in the, uh, in the hopes that these parents and young athletes that are, you know, trying to get to the NHL where you got to, and how can we use this, you know, to serve them and to help them. And I think that is, if I got it right, I mean, that is the message. And that is really the reason why you started the book in the first place is to serve. Is that not correct? Correct.
0: Yeah. I think that the whole process was, um, actually literally didn't start out that way. Um, but I think at the end of the day, once I received the final product and actually, and then once it was released, cause I didn't know what to expect. I was just, uh, I wouldn't say I was on pins and needles cause I was proud of what I wrote, but it's one thing for me to me to like it and my editor to like it. It's not a thing for just a normal person to, to enjoy it because of the, uh, the rawness of it, I think. And, uh, and, uh, May not be embarrassing for someone else, but some of the stuff for me was, especially having a daughter. As I was writing it, I'm like, oh, man, she's going to one day she's going to read some of this stuff, you know. Um, and I think so for me, it was probably Chloe was on my mind the most. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the the feedback, once I started getting the feedback about a week after the book was released, it made me uh, just sort of take a deep breath because I had a, a, a kid from junior Uh, message me and say, Hey, Brandt, I read your book. um, And I just wanted to thank you because um, my dad overdosed uh, and died um, uh, relatively not too long ago. And I'm not as mad at my father as I was. And that to me, because that's what what it was all about for me. And then I had another gentleman out of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Uh, His name is uh, David, I don't know how to, Waronker or something, I can't say his last name properly, it's my fault. But anyway, so David got a hold of me and said, my son was in treatment, and I read your book. And what I'd like to do is, um, I'd like to buy uh, 1,000 books, and I'd like to uh, package them up and send them to all 33 NHL teams. So he did, so he bought 1025 bucks, and uh, they're being shipped out, I believe, tomorrow to all of the NHL teams, and uh, it was just an amazing uh, gesture that uh, it touched somebody else that much uh, to do something like that.
1: Wow, so his motivation was to get one in the hands of every person that plays in the NHL, Is that was that the idea?
0: Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he just wow. said. He just said, me and my wife um, donate to a lot of uh, certain charities every year. He also sent 200 books to the Boston University. And he just said that, wow, uh, this is just uh, something I feel that most athletes should have in their hand.
1: Right. So you mentioned that it wasn't an act of service when you started uh, writing. What, what what was that process for you? Um, I. I would assume maybe uh, there is an act of therapy in there as well, but um, I'll let you answer that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think um, like anything um, for me, once I sort of sit down and grab a pen and write stuff down, um, it starts to become real versus me thinking about it in my head. And it started out as a proposal for the, for the league and the, and the players association. And um And then I started writing about when I was a child and I thought, Hey, I'm just going to write down every memory that I have in my life, everything that's ever happened to me. Um, I'm just going to write it down and I don't know where that's going to go. And I did that and it took, it took a while because I, you know, my life was changing and in 2015 I might've been maybe three quarters done. Uh, And then I stopped writing for three years when I was hired by the by the Kings. And then when that job came to an end in 2018, then um, they asked if I'd like to finish it. And I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to. So then that it became more real at that point. It's like, oh, okay. I think I've I've got something sort of on my hands here.
1: Right because then you had that you know, not that chapter um, to use the metaphor from a book, but you I mean that was that chapter in your life where kind you know if it, essentially it had come full circle right you you'd been to the bottom now you're back in the show and now you had that bookend you know to to probably fill in uh, where you at on that on that journey that's uh which is a really great part of the story in which I, I do want to get to mm-hmm. what um how how was that i mean so you weren't somebody that kept a a journal then you mentioned about pen to paper that's something that when i'm coaching athletes now i'm trying to get these younger athletes to believe in what you just said uh because everything is so digital now everything's on their phone you know uh to get thoughts right or ideas or memories or experiences or anything of that nature down is much different than how we think it is upstairs right so um and there, there becomes a realness to it. I mean, you have to become a little bit more uh, clear, right? There has to be clarity with what you're, with what you're thinking when you're putting it down on paper. How, how was that for you to piece these things together? And at the last second part of that is, did you have something from your time? Did you write stuff down as you went through your, your, uh, your career?
0: No, I didn't. I, I, I always sort of kept a journal, though, ever since I got sober. And if you've noticed in the book, I, I, I was hesitant on inserting inserting some of my journal um, pieces in there because those are obviously extremely personal. Nobody's ever read those before. I didn't know how that was going to make me look. Um, but it was true at the time, and I was writing it down. And then so when I was writing the, writing the book, I went back and I looked at some of my old journal stuff And we decided to put some of those pieces in there to make it just a little bit more real, you know, like, Hey, this is exactly what I was going through and my feelings and all that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, it was a, it was a process. Um, I didn't realize uh, what went into it because my editor just said, get ready for a lot of work. And I'm like, what do you mean work? I, I just wrote it. He's like, no, no, no. It's like we got a lot of work to do over the next year. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, he goes, yep. He goes, there's just a lot of stuff we have to um, talk about, uh, just the placement of the stories, how it's going to flow, the cover. Um, there's just a lot. And uh, anyway, so I, I didn't, I'm a guy that likes to get things done right away. So it just, it was, a, it was a long process
1: yeah wow uh, when did when did the publishing company come into the picture I and mean, when you sat down with this before you even got hired by LA I assume that was just on you for you and your own terms right uh, when when did Penguin come into the picture?
0: Well, my job ended with the Kings after the 2018 season um, and then it it wasn't that much longer. I'd say three weeks. I got hooked up with a gentleman named uh, Nick Garrison who's in the acknowledgments at the end who, uh, you know, listen, I mean, without, he was just incredible. I didn't, I just text him after we were doing our editing and I said, oh, that's why you get paid the big bucks um, because you're so good at what you do. And I, I didn't understand what editors did. Um, but one day he sent me a, a document. He's like, well, there's 1,100 corrections that we need to take care of like really <laughs> you know and then the lawyers have to look at the uh, at the book because there's parts of this book that uh, are actually really PG um, there's some stuff in there that the they flagged ten things that we needed to remove so um, I have the unedited version
1: <laughs> I need that copy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You mentioned, you mentioned, talk, you know, when we first started here that you were unsure of what the response was going to be, you know, and that you, you might like it or your editor might like it, but you weren't sure what everyone else was going to do. Uh, fear of other people's opinion stops a lot of us from doing a lot of things. Um, and I think even in hockey and from the player development standpoint, how, how invested are you in that? you know, the fact that other people like it, don't like it, what they think of it. Um, are you, where are you at in that whole process?
0: Well, I think that anytime you take on a project like this, um, it's human nature that you, you'd enjoy to be validated. Uh, nobody wants to not be validated on what they've done. Um, and this is a subject I believe that it really touches the heart of, um, I think our planet, in, in general, I'm not just about Canada. I'm talking about. I believe that if you probably went into every household within uh, North America for sure, and said in the home you would walk in and say, do you, "Do you have anyone in your family or yourself that's dealing with some type of an addiction problem?" I, I believe somebody in the home would raise their hand. So I think that this is a this is a vast. Uh, pandemic that we're dealing with so to call it down or to to say bad reviews I thought that that would happen within the first half of the book because of the way that I led my life and that's fine but I think if <laughs> if you read the last hundred pages I really try to change you know and be a better person and um, hopefully they can uh,
1: relate with that who is this book for? I mean, you, you touched on it there, but who who do you think is, is it for? Is it for someone who is dealing with something? Is it somebody who has somebody who's dealt with something? Is it for somebody who maybe has no issues at all, and maybe it's a precursor for them just to understand what, what the future may look like or what that could look like if they were presented with it?
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, it 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 might be a book that can serve on different platforms when it comes to, um, you know, you, you read about how I treated my girlfriends in there. Um, how about, you know, family issues? I mean, with my mother and my father, you don't have to be an alcoholic or an addict to have issues with your parents, you know? And then when it comes full circle to where, you know, I grabbed my father's hand before he was dying, you know, and forgave him for the anger that, you know, I had over the years. Um, and I've forgiven my mom too. Uh there's just different messages in the book. And and obviously, yes, if you are struggling with uh, an addiction issue, uh, I guess for me personally, Hey, I think I was probably as down as, as down can get. And for some reason, uh, there is this little, there's a voice inside of me just saying, don't ever give up. And and when you're staring down the barrel of a, of a fifth suspension or a fifth rehab, and you're completely broke financially, spiritually, emotionally, physically, it's hard to grab that little piece of hope. It's like, why? It's like I've been trying this for 13 years. It's not working. But I did, and I grabbed onto it, and it was, man, it was a slow burn (laughs) because it it took a while for me to get back on my feet.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a – in reading the book, like – at the end i was like what is like what what is the what am i feeling you know and, and i was trying to think like what were you feeling and and to me you didn't use the word embarrassed i don't think in it like i don't remember reading that but there seemed to be like shame you know and, and i think the shame to me i felt like it started as that young boy you know with with, with the mom that wasn't around and with the dad that didn't show up and you know, with those other, those other awful couple of awful stories that showed up that, I mean, to metabolize that as a young, as a young boy, you, without even knowing, I think subconsciously, you think there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with what's happening. Uh, And, and then it stepped into the hockey scenario and the WHL level. And and obviously correct me if, if I'm not connecting the dots, but as, as I read it, like there was a bit of shame that you turned into a fighter instead of a hockey player. And I don't think you really like that at the time. So there was a bit of underlying shame with that, that this is who you had had turned into. Am I, am I putting the pieces together? Um, okay with that? Um, I
0: wouldn't say there was ever shame of the role that I played. Jason, I loved protecting you and i like protecting Valerie Bure. And I think, as I mentioned it before, like you guys are like my brothers, almost like a little family. And so when I look back at it, um, You know, I, when I was a child, I wasn't protected by somebody that should have fought to the death, really, you know, my mom. So when I got into a team environment, I think that protecting you guys gave me a little bit of satisfaction that I didn't have when I was a kid. I'm like, yeah, nobody's going to fuck with you guys right now, you know, and I'm going to be the big dog on the street and, uh, um, it was just maybe a weird way to look at it, but I think assessing it now, um, I wanted you, you guys to feel protected. So I'd never had shame in the role. I wanted to be a better hockey player. I wanted to um, play the game of hockey like I did when I was in my last year midget, where I went to the game and you know wasn't putting Vaseline on my face or stretching out my jersey. Um, you know, not focusing on the puck um, and when the score was tied or, you know, I never got to play anymore, really. Um, only when we were down by three or four goals. So, it, so you could feel that uh, that role was uh, it was appreciated by you guys, like you guys would pat me on the back and everything and say, good job, Maisie. But deep down, I wanted to be on that first line, first line power play you know, and not, not have to worry about
1: that. Yeah. I mean, I, I brought that up in the sense, because I mean, you were very honest in the book about your association with fighting and how you didn't enjoy it. You know, like, so you, I, I, I hear you saying that you like the ID, the, the, the role of protecting your teammates and, and where that s- sat you on the totem pole and how that gave you purpose and identity. Right. I, I get that aspect, but the actual physical act of doing it, it wasn't something that you really looked forward to. Um, And for me, like, and and, and I can, I mean, I was never a tough guy and this isn't a physical aspect, but like, we all have ideas of how we're going to show up on the scene or how we're going to execute this thing of whatever our dream is. Right. And for both of us, it was hockey and playing the NHL. Right. And, and, you know, I was lucky enough to play in the NHL too, but I didn't live the way that I thought it was going to live or what I, my, my abilities were. Right. So there was a period in my life where I was like almost embarrassed about my career. You know, on uh, to myself, and and maybe because, maybe because of the expectations I had, maybe it was the expectations others had for me that I let people down. You know, like I don't know where that all came from, but I definitely had that feeling, right? Like that I kind of screwed this up. You know, like, there was something else that I, that there was something more that I could have stepped into. Um, I am in a way healthier place with that now. Like just saying, I mean, it was hard what we did. I mean, to get to in whatever role and however we got there was hard to do it. And we had to do a lot of good things right, and it's something to be proud of. Not many people get to put on an NHL jersey, but. I guess that's where my parallel is Though for saying that, right? I've I've felt that for me, you know, and I I think that I would probably feel that too if I made the NHL, let's say, as a fourth liner, right? And I'd be like, well, I was supposed to be a power play guy, right? I think that I would probably have had that association with it. I didn't quite get it the way I wanted it. So I feel you because, one, I saw you at, well, we mean – maybe your best, right? I mean, you were a point of game guy when, when I was playing with you and you were on that first line with with Duth and, you know, protecting Val and, I mean, you could score and you could play. So I know that you had that in you and reading that book, I know that you felt, you know, you felt like you were a player because you were a player, you know, and then at some point you weren't allowed to be a player anymore. And I think that's hard for, for, for athletes to deal with, especially when we get into that pro level. And maybe that's a good connection for guys playing right now because it's like sometimes we're asked to do things we don't necessarily want to do or want to do all the time. You know, yeah.
0: I mean, listen. The games, kids don't have to worry about my role today. It's gone. Um, <clears throat> you know, and with you, I mean, part of being a goal scorer like yourself, you know, I, I think at least every two or three games, I could say, okay, I'm going to go do my job. I'm going to go get the scrap tonight. You couldn't do that. You couldn't say, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to go bury too. I mean, you'd <laughs> like to, right? So for me, I could do my job like pretty quick, you know, early in the game, get it done. Where if you're a goal scorer and you got all that pressure on your shoulders and you haven't had a point in four games, talk about pressure, right? We're pushing the envelope. So um, I could see on your point too, and um, but as far as today's the way the kids are thinking today, I think it's just a different mindset.
1: i just going to take a short break from the conversation with Brant to discuss what's happening here over the summer and in the fall. Uh, I have put together a team services package, uh, which has been my focus here in the last little while. I find that it's the best way to serve um, as many people as possible and have the biggest impact. And if, and I think it's really rewarding to see individual athletes within a team environment apply some of these skills, these mindset skills that I talk about and uh, and allow teams to build around it. It's been super gratifying to see and, uh, and I'm getting booked up. So I wanted to let everyone know that that is what's happening and that's my focus. So um, summer programs, uh, fall programs, if you're an academy out there and if you would like to add mindset training to your team building and as one of the tools in the toolkits for your For your athletes, um, I suggest you get in touch with me now. Uh, There's not many people out there that are doing what I'm doing. I'm seeing unbelievable results. And I do think it's a progressive thing that uh, everyone is going to be doing stuff like this uh, 10 years from now. So get ahead of the curve uh skill set without mindset is nothing, right? We spend so much time working on the skill set of our athletes, uh, the physical realm of our athletes. We need to be able to find purpose with that skill set. Uh and using some of these mindset skills that I talk about really helps teams come together. It gives them something to galvanize around, something to focus on and provide intention to. So Uh, Yeah, reach out to me. I'm really excited about the programs I've got offered right now. I do still have some spots left for fall, but they are evaporating. So, um, yeah, get in touch. DM me either on Facebook, either on Instagram, or on my website is really the best way uh, upmyhockey.com where you can see the services being laid out there. It's either workshops or through my programs or me in person, and you can have me as the mindset coach for your team throughout the season. Exciting times. I love what's going on here. I love the results that that we're getting. So uh, yeah, get involved in the program, and uh, we'll look after your athletes. Now back to the episode with Brent Myers. Right. Yeah, I mean they don't have to do that. Although it's interesting, you mean know, bringing it full circle, watching what uh, how some of those teams are handling, like McDavid right now. You know, especially the other night. Um, you know, Christopher Steege went off a little bit. That you know the league needs to protect their best players. You know what I mean it's? I was just thinking in my head. You know what I mean? a penalty is not going to protect the best players. You know, you cross check somebody in the back and he sits there for two minutes in the penalty box. Like no team cares about that. If that's going to get McDavid off his game, but someone like you, like a penalty doesn't fear is another thing. You know, I, I I don't know if it's, I mean, it's definitely not there right now, but I think that those players like the Cassians and the Wilsons and the guys that can play and are tough. I think that there's a place for them. And I think there will be for a long time, unless they actually eliminate fighting from the entire game, which maybe might be coming, but It's just such a weird sport, don't you think? Like, like, what do you do? How do you protect? Like, what does the league protect McDavid, or does somebody on Edmonton Oilers protect McDavid?
0: No, it's it's the way that the rules are now. So I remember we were playing a game one night, and uh, somebody was running around. I can't remember who it was, but wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily go after the other team's tough guy? I'd say, okay, you went after Mike Ricci, right? Well, I'm gonna you know go after Forsberg next shift. And that's sort of how you calm things down. It's like, okay. Like if you guys want this game to go this way, no problem, but your stars are going to get it. So it keeps the other bench accountable going, okay, well, if I run around a little bit too much, like you know, if Marchant, you know, if we played against Marchant in, the, in in the 90s, well, Bergeron's getting it, not Marchant. You know, and that's sort of the way that we'd handle it. Um In some games, man, there was nothing going on because nobody wanted to, to, you know, you know the energy of the game, right? Everything was smooth and nobody was taking runs at guys. So, um, I always believed that as a team of twenty three guys on the ice, or twenty two, or whatever it may be, that we policed ourselves, and we did a. I thought we did a pretty good job of it, you know. Um, But that today, unfortunately, guys lose money now. They just they don't want to lose. 200 300 grand. So they don't
1: do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting watching the evolution. I mean, it's, it's uh, I think there's, I think the pendulum's going to swing back a little bit the other way at some point. I, I, I think it's, it's gone a little bit farther to the skill side. But whatever, that's my own opinion. We'll see it. We'll see how it goes. I think it's uh, it usually shows itself now in the playoffs, right? Like having those heavy bodies, those guys that can turn it up a notch. You know, like uh. And teams want to win. That's what it's all about. So it's one thing to get to the playoffs, but it's another thing to win in the playoffs. You know, and uh, you know, you said the enforcer. I do think the enforcer role, like the you know the six foot eight player that can't really skate, that's just tough. And I mean, I think that's probably gone forever. But I, I do think that the. Somebody who's gritty, somebody who can throw every once in a while, someone who's going to compete in the corners and, and make people uncomfortable out there. I think, you know, wherever you are, 15, 16 year olds, stand up, raise your hand because there's teams that, that want you for sure. Uh, I think.
0: Yeah, but there's a kid in, uh, in Boston that literally became my, I think, my new favorite player. His last name Frederick or something like that, number 11. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I watched some clips on him. Man, it just—it was so refreshing to see a kid like beacon at guys and like getting in their face, and you know, Ovi stuck them in the balls, and then you know, yeah. like you know, I've got seven fights left that I'm gonna waste all of them on you, and I don't know, man. It was just cool to to see that, uh, just that spark, I guess, you know, from a kid. And mm-hmm. uh, but again, Jason, they're they're breeding them at a young age, way differently, so. You know, part of the thing when you get to the National Hockey League for me and you, first thing I did was I couldn't wait to take the visor off. Yeah. Like I'm like, my like, like, no helmet warm up for sure. And uh, you know, wow, I've got no visor on. I'm a pro. Like I'm, I'm in pros now. And now, um, you know, there. I believe there's only maybe I don't know seven guys or something that, that don't have it. And it'll eventually be all visors. But to be a fighter now, my Lord, like your hands. I would have never done that role if I had to punch a visor. There's no way.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, They've legislated that in. Uh, Just like the helmets were legislated in during our time. You know, like that was kind of crazy. I was like that too. I couldn't, I I loved warm up with no helmet. Um, That was so amazing being in the NHL and being able to do that. Yeah. so, I mean, and you t- talked about the culture actually a little bit, I mean, the culture of fighting, but even the culture, I think, back when we played in junior, um, for sure, as far as hockey culture has come a long way. Uh, and, and I think there's been a reckoning a little bit w- w- with it, you know, uh, as far as what was associated with being a junior player and, and and alcohol was definitely a part of the equation, you know, at a, at a, at a young age, you know, and I'm not saying that we drank earlier than kids in high school, you know, but I just think like the whole idea of being a junior player um, seemed to involve beers, right. It was like some type of rite of passage almost. And uh, I believe that that's being removed from the game and it's very uh, it's not as, it's not as big of a deal as it was with us, but, Going back to that time, you know, when, when we knew each other and um, and we'd have our team parties after the games or whatever, it was definitely understood from a leadership side within the team and even from the coaching staff that this stuff was going on. It wasn't like it was hidden. Um, wh- where do you feel like as yourself in that scenario? Now looking back on everything, were you a part of that culture? Were you leading that culture? You know, like where, I don't know, like how do you find your place in that whole thing? Well,
0: I just remember when I got traded from Portland to Lethbridge and the drinking age was 18, um, and I just literally fell in love with it. Like, I could I could sit with you with a bottle of whatever and just sit and, and chat about anything in life and have a blast, you know, um, let alone at a team party with all, all, my, all my teammates. There's a lot of testosterone going on at that age, and there's – you know, you're trying to figure your way out through life. And I think the the bond that you have when you do have a, a six-pack of beer with your buddy on the team, you know, looking back, um, I abused it. I mean, there's no way around it. Um, I wasn't responsible in any way when I drank. But there were guys on my team that were, you know, like um, just lots of guys uh, that uh, they wouldn't drink and drive. You know, they wouldn't punch somebody out in the bar. Um, they wouldn't show up to practice throwing out. I mean, they just... So there There were guys that were responsible drinkers, and there were guys like me and a few other guys on the team that couldn't handle it. But usually they got weeded out.
1: Right. Look, Looking back now on that whole scenario, like, when, when does someone become an addict? Like, do you think that you were an addict then? Do you think that there was... Like the first time you had a sip of beer, you became an addict, or is that something you grow into? In your opinion,
0: no, I don't. I I, I think for me, the the love affair I had with with alcohol and uh, and drugs was um, from probably that sixteen year old mark, like right when I hit seventeen. And I just remember saying to myself that I couldn't fathom my life anymore without drinking or. Or doing drugs, and I and uh, again, it was something that I cherished more than the game. And uh, I knew at that point something I, that I was thinking differently than other people. I didn't understand what it meant to be an alcoholic or a drug addict or anything like that. I just knew there was something inside me saying you're never you're never going to give up this feeling because it feels too good. Right. And uh, and I didn't.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm looking one of the things I remember about, I mean, what what year were you born? You're uh, a 74. Yeah, you're 74. So you're two years older than me. It was my draft year when you were, uh, when you were in spoke, you came there at the end. And uh, so that was obviously a big year for me, you know, trying to get ready for the draft. And I remember when you got traded that I was, you know, you were two years older. I mean, I was second year in the league, but you were definitely somebody that i mean i don't know caught my attention i aspired to be like i i was uh i just thought you were a cool dude you know like I, and 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 we did get along too right i mean obviously we got along but it was like it was interesting that i was drawn to you and we did have some fun i, I mean there was nothing egregious i remember of any stories when we were there no. but i got thinking too like i mean what if you and i got drafted the same team you know like what if you know, like how, how would that affected me? Like, do you think that your journey might have been different if there was someone to model above you that was maybe doing different things?
0: Um, I, I can only speak for once I made it to the, to the NHL and then I was put into the substance abuse program uh, at the age of 24. I think looking back at it, like let's say got a guy like Bob Probert was in the role that I was in in Los Angeles and he was working for the Sharks um, or the Tampa Bay Lightning. Well, I know for a fact I would have used Bob. I, I don't know where it would have went, but I would have used Bob in some capacity for sure. Because back then, um, I didn't tell a soul what I was doing. I mean, other than the girls that I was partying with. But as far as teammates went or agents, or I, I was so scared of losing my job. And, you know... Those paychecks were pretty amazing back then that I wasn't going to tell anybody. So if we had somebody like Proby who was strictly confidential that I could talk to and hang out with on the road and stuff, um, I definitely would have used them.
1: So so you've answered one of the questions I was going to ask. So then you were doing your stuff without anyone uh, in your hip pocket it wasn't like you were inviting guys out with you or there wasn't somebody going with you. And I mean, I wouldn't want names anyways, but I mean, it was a solo mission for the most part, what you were, what you were up to. Well,
0: from time to time. Yes. I mean, once it got into the, to the the late cocaine nights, um, you know, of calling a dealer at three or four in the morning. at that point I'm, I'm by myself with, with a girl. Um, Because, again, the guys that I might go for beers with, they weren't the guys, you know, that were uh, hanging out with me when I was doing that kind of stuff. It's one thing to go to the bar and drink to have fun. It's another thing to be calling drug dealers at one o'clock in the morning, you know. So most of the times I was solo.
1: That's what I was wondering, because I mean... you have to play, I think, to really understand the fraternity and the brotherhood of what a you know, hockey locker room is like. Um, that's the only thing I can speak to. I don't know what a baseball locker room is like or soccer or anything else. But there hockey hockey was special, I thought, in that way. And I thought that as much as we were there for a career, um it was a family in there, you know. And I was just wondering how that how in, in those stages, those different stages of whatever phase you were in maybe, or even not even in a phase, I mean, once guys knew, right. Cause that's public that you were in there, like how the support was going or not going for that matter. Um, w- from inside the locker room.
0: Well, again, you know, <clears throat> there were a few guys that tried to help me and, uh, that showed legitimate concern. But I think at that point, you know, um, there was really no outside influence. I was so far gone by the time I hit San Jose that my path was was not a good one. Girls that I loved, uh, my grandparents, um, general managers that I really looked up to, you know, Bobby Clark and David Poyle and and uh, Mr. Wilson in San Jose, um, Paul Coffey, who was an idol of mine, and uh, he would always talk to me. and, say, hey, Knuckles, you're going to need to take a break here. I played with a lot of guys like you over the years. You know, Wayne Cashman was my coach in uh, Philly, and he had, uh, I believe at the time, 12 years sober, and he tried to help me. Um, Paul Holmgren would call me in Philly and try to take me to um, AA meetings because he was sober. And I basically would just hang up the phone on Mr. Holmgren. So, I mean, there were lots of people that were, putting their hand out to try and help me. Um, but I was just on a, a demolition course at that point
1: oh yeah and and uh obviously trying to understand and I'm sure you're even trying to understand you know so you what's the difference between someone like Bob Probert you're saying like in in a role that you were that you were in with la you, you said you mean you probably would have went and used him and who knows what would have happened but what's the difference between that and say a guy like Paul Holmgren who says hey man let's Let's go do this. Let's let's get some. Let's get you better. How do you see that being different?
0: Well, Paul Paul Holmgren's job is to report to Bob Clark. My job in L.A. was to report to nobody. So there's a big difference there. Um, <clears throat> I staged it in four stages. So the first two stages, uh, I gave the player a lot of rope to do. Uh, you know, I guess you could call it an aftercare program. And then in stage three, if they're not complying, I have to bring some, I had to bring Dean in. They all knew that. But again, there's a big difference on who I have to report to. And that's what I told Dean. I go, you're not going to like this program. You know, you got to do reports every couple of weeks. You're not going to get one from me. And, uh, but he was great. I always take my hat off the dean. He just said, "Okay, I paid you to do a job. Now go ahead and do it." So,
1: right. so that's the big one. You think like the, uh, yeah, that level of of knowledge, or you mean, or what the what that guy's real job is, you know? So maybe there's a little bit of a suspect of like, is this really for me, or is this for to benefit the organization?
0: Oh yeah. Like if let's say you know I'm just throwing a an name out. Uh, let's say Andre Kopitar had a problem. Kopi's making ten million bucks a year. Uh, if Kopi knew that you know my job was to do, give reports and you know my first obligation was Dean and Daryl and all, he would have never talked. It was okay. right. yeah. So um, the way that I had it set up, it was uh, obviously very, very confidential, and um, it seemed to, after a while, it seemed to uh, get ingrained that they were okay to trust me.
1: So is that I mean you you said yourself you would have used Bob, but maybe you wouldn't known what would happen, like looking back on where you were at and like, I mean the path that you were on, was there a way to help you? Would that have been the only way to help you?
0: Yeah, he would have been the only guy. Um, I looked up to him because he played. Um, I knew that he was sober, couldn't believe that Bob Probert was sober and still playing in the NHL and still one of the you know toughest guys in the league. I just really respected him. And, you know, I talk about it in the book where I tried to stay sober for a while just to impress Bob. I didn't, didn't want to let Bob down, you know, um, and I didn't even really know him. So let alone if he worked for a team. Um, and I'm not saying everybody's Bob Probert, yeah. but I just think for sure, I hey, listen, I would have at least had a chance. that I, That's all I know.
1: That one, the one story, and and one of the ones because it is a little bit of the of the old school approach, maybe, uh, but kind of what happens in the locker room stays in the locker room, uh, for la- lack of a better word. Like there was a couple stories that you told, one with Bob Probert and the uh, and the cocaine on the cigarette, I think, if I remember correctly, and one with the first rounder with with the Boston guy, where you, where he came along with you for a for uh for a night trip or whatever, and it kind of made it. it you know, and I'm speaking honestly, like it made my stomach hurt a little bit. Cause I'm like, Oh man, was like, I wonder why you, like you chose to use the names and if that was hard for you or how you came to that thing of why you felt that was needed or should be in there.
0: Um, well, the (laughs) number one, the Bob Probert story is, it, it was no, it's not, that's not a secret. I mean, I'm not, indulging anything that anybody didn't know about Bob. He spent time in jail for that stuff. Right. Um, and I don't use the kid's name in in Boston. Um, for all they know, it could be Samenko. a lot of guys named Sammy. <clears throat> right, right, right. Right? So I don't know. I, I didn't, you know, I don't, I think if you, if you really dissect the book, um, the only guy that I throw under the bus is Brent Myers.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you were 100 percent accountable, and I just wanted to ask you because I didn't know. Again, I mean, that was that was that was what I felt in my guts, uh, you know, at the time. Just and just a little bit of an underlining hint, and I know that probably even writing it, whether whether people knew or not, there was there was, I'm I'm sure there was a little bit of back and forth with you internally, uh, you know, on on what to say. There was just wondering how that how that came to be, because yeah, I mean, Bob was just such a larger than life guy. Um, in so many ways I mean he really was the poster boy for that role and how to do the role I don't know uh, properly is the wrong word but I mean he scored goals too right he was a player he made an impact in so many different ways uh, and he was so damn tough Um, unfortunately obviously he had the substance abuse issues that you know um, ended up hurting him at the end but um, yeah what a what, what a guy. I mean, it sounds like he was just an amazing guy. Even your relationship with him and anyone who knew him just seemed like he was just this yeah, great human being.
0: Yeah. I, it, I mean, there was two people that I really wanted to meet in my life. One was Wayne Gretzky and the other one was Bob Probert. And <laughs> I didn't tell Bobby that. But when I worked out with him for the first day, I'm sitting on the bike and I, I'm just sort of looking at him, well, is this really Bob Probert? You know? And then his attitude was just man no wonder everybody loved him like he's just a great guy and then when he offers to um rent a harley davidson on his visa for me uh and i had no motorcycle license uh, you know there i am i'll never forget i'm on i'm on his harley and he's doubling me to the to the dealership and i got my arms wrapped around him i'm like what am i doing right now like is this really happening it was one of those like aha uh-huh moments, and then his wife, Danny, is such a beautiful soul, and, and uh, she was just such an, uh, an amazing, patient woman. Very patient woman.
1: Even that, I mean, you break that story up. I mean, that was, I, I had that picture in my head, you guys going to the dealership <laughs> t- together, <laughs> a lot of penalty minutes on that bike, Um but you I mean that night, right, that night, and then showing up that next day, uh, having him be such an idol, like you know yeah. like so crazy right because obviously you were looking forward to that trip obviously you were looking forward to being with those guys you know like stepping into that scenario you didn't want to show up in the way you did um that seemed like that was i don't know maybe maybe walk us walk us through that like how that was for you even getting into that spot and then what that day was like
0: well once i was writing the book and i that story you know uh the my, my editor nick said hey the, motor, the Harley story goes, we want to open with that one. <laughs> I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just to, to let people understand after two rehabs what how powerful this disease is, you know. And, um, I you know, I mean, for me to get pulled over with the cops and blood on my shirt and no helmet and no motorcycle license and drunk as a skunk and they still let me go, and then I hide under a truck. And I get back on the bike? I mean, show up the next day and my idol rented me the bike, you know? But I just, I was getting good at that point of burying all the shame. I'm like, you know what, fuck all this. Like, I i, I don't know what's in store for my life, but, um, you know, and the only way for me to bury it was to, was to medicate.
1: At different points, there was there was, there was, was times in the summer when you're rehabbing where you were taking care of your body, uh, you know, going to the gym. Uh, it sounded like you were in shape. There's also times where you really weren't in shape, but it sounded like where you weren't taking care of uh, your facility. Did, was there, usually with this podcast, we're talking about how guys are trying to get better, you know, how they're trying to improve their craft. Was that something that, that you were at different points, like trying to become a better fighter or trying to become a better hockey player? Um to stick around?
0: I think the first time I really ever worked out was when I was 25 years old, when I was playing in San Jose. And uh, they ran, well, I was sorry, I was in rehab. And they said, hey, you've got a box twice a week and you have to go to Venice Beach, this Gold's gym for five days a week. It was the first time I trained. And uh, I just remember uh, taking my shirt off one day and uh, looking at my, my stomach. And it was sort of flat. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here? And then when I went to San Jose, uh, the Flyers were in town. And that was my whole team. They didn't recognize me. They were skating by me. And some of the guys had to do a lap to go myzy Because I, I only weighed 214 pounds. I was in shape. I was flying in camp. And, you know, my fights, I was just quick on my feet and all this stuff. And I never, I didn't know what that felt like. And, uh, so yeah, I did try to be a better hockey player for sure. And I just think that once I was focused and there was no booze or drugs and I was, you know, not eating for dinner at midnight, I mean, you know, right. body starts to change.
1: Yeah. And then, so those, those experiences, like you said, I mean, in San Jose, that was also some of your toughest times there too. So you had some, like a, a good, a good time feeling, Hey, I'm in shape. I got this under control I'm feeling good about what's going on um yet you know the demons or the monsters or whatever are still there dealing with that i i I was wondering if that would have could have been you know like uh a new addiction uh essentially to to get to get in to get involved in which is you know the getting better addiction right Mm -hmm. trying to trying to be a be a be a specimen
0: yeah you know what jay like i look at what these guys do now in the summer and um how they take care of their bodies uh how dedicated these kids are and it's needed because um, you know, for any kid out there uh, that thinks that he can get away with putting in 99%, you're wrong. You're wrong. The percentages, they'll weed you out. You'll never make it. Um, You have to, even if it's your best friend that you're training with uh, in the summers, you're going to want to, you know, work harder than him. And Uh, I couldn't imagine if I would have stopped drinking at 17 and had a summer coach that Sidney Crosby has, you know, what I could have turned into, you know, like who knows? I already had God given talent. Um, But the system is meant over time to weed those players out. That's why there's only 700 of them in the world. So these kids have to understand that just because you score 50 in junior, that means nothing. I knew a guy that was in Swift Current, his uh, a, a man, I forget his name. He had 160 points one year, and he didn't even get drafted. Kryolik. Yes, yes. I was like, how does this guy not get drafted? He had 160 points.
1: 81 goals.
0: 81 Gs. So, so yeah. you, you kids out there that actually think because you get 50 in the dub or the O that you're going to the show, you got way more work to go. Like, it's just, it's crazy. You know, Jay, how hard it is to get there. Actually getting there, getting that cup of coffee, um, I would, it, obviously it's not easy, but boy, oh boy, to carve out a career in the National Hockey League, that's, that's the hard one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, yeah, and it's so contested. You know, I mean, it's so competitive. And I think, the, the work is a prerequisite now. You know, one of the things that I'm passionate about is about talking about those things other than the skill set, right? Like the, all the, all the mindset things that go into it. Well, even like yourself included, right? I mean, there's, you can go off the rails in so many different ways, whether it, you know, it, it can, it can be addiction. It can also be lack of focus. It can also be lack of dedication. It can also be not being able to deal with some adversity when, you know, the coach doesn't like you. I mean, there's, there's so many things that can happen that are going to get in your way. And, and I think you said it really well there. I mean, it, I don't know if it's designed to weed people out, but it sure does. You know, it sure does. Cause there's, it's not a smooth road for anyone, you know, like no one has a smooth road there and it's, how can we adapt? How can we, how can we evolve? Right. And, and, and what do we, what do we do to, to become this professional hockey player that we want to be? And, um, yeah, man, it's a, it's well, a tough, the model,
0: the, the model should be, how bad do you want the best job in the world?
1: Yeah.
0: Really? Yeah. Cause you know, other than if I remove myself or my role and the experiences that I had in the National Hockey League, best job in the world, no doubt about it. And how bad do you want to have that job? Yeah, you know. And uh, I'm not saying you have to be a choir boy, but boy, oh, boy, the competition's tough nowadays.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the passion. I always come back to the passion, and it's kind of a buzzword. And it's some for some people, it's empty. But like you got to, you really got to love it, right? I mean, you have you have to love the sport. You have to love different aspects of the sport too. I think that's an interesting uh, thing to talk about because you know you mentioned that I was a goal scorer. So for someone like me, I love scoring goals. Don't get me wrong. I had a massive amount of rush doing that at big times and being that player, but. I had to fall in love with different aspects of the game to be able to stick around, right? Because you can't be the goal scorer all the time, especially when you're just breaking into the NHL, like you said, right? So somebody who's a goal scorer in junior, you have to love the game enough to fill a different role at a different time to go show up and do it with enthusiasm, right, with vigor, with dedication. Um, And I think that's a passion thing. You know, I mean, that's uh, what you can talk about and you can train it. But, I mean, you do have to love what you're doing, I think.
0: Well, also, I write about it in the book. Where my father told me, if you're not if you're not scoring, and you're not making um, incredible plays, do something so that somebody notices you. So if you're a goal scorer and you're not you haven't scored a goal in a couple of games or whatever it may be, get dirty, like, get dirty. Like tell somebody to fuck off, give them an extra shove. Like get a little close to the goalie. You know, create some havoc in front of the net. Like, do something. Don't just go the whole game. Okay, I'm not getting my ice timer. I haven't scored. But do something. Like, there's still hitting in the game. You know, there's still intimidation. I don't care how big you are. There's little guys that play that way, too. So, do something for the coach after the game to say, Hey, so-and-so, you know what, like, okay, yeah, they haven't scored in a few games, but man, oh, man, did they make a difference in the momentum of the game or whatever it may be.
1: Just going to take a short break to remind you and to thank you for the reviews and for what you're doing to grow the podcast. I'm a competitive guy. Uh, I want to keep climbing, climbing these ranks, but more importantly, I'm a competitive guy, meaning that I want... More people to be able to consume what we're doing here, I believe the message does matter. Every guest I bring on has something that we can learn from that we can apply to our own lives and use uh, either as coaches as parents or as athletes um, to become better, whether it's better people or whether it be better athletes and uh, And I think the message is, is worth fighting for. so I do ask you to leave the comments to leave the reviews to share on your social media. Uh, It all matters. Every time you do it, it puts the podcast into somebody else's uh, mind, right into their intention. And maybe they'll download that next episode and subscribe. So thank you to everyone who has subscribed. Thank you for the reviews. I said that we were doing five-star reviews we'd had uh, from one of the five-star reviews that came in. Uh, I was going to read it out and it comes from Viking Rising in the United States of America. It's great to have American listeners. I love that we're growing into the U.S. and and that uh, the message is catching on in the U.S. And Viking Rising says, awesome content, five stars. Jason does a fantastic job on the podcast of digging in and getting in deep with his guests. I really like it because it is not a cookie cutter podcast and actually even makes you think from time to time. (laughs) Very informative and entertaining. Definitely worth listening to. I hope they keep on coming for a long time. Thanks again, Jude. Uh, I love that review. Uh, I do think that's what makes us a bit different. Uh, I try to keep the authentic, authenticity of myself in check. I am a curious guy. I do enjoy the deeper aspects of actions, of meaning, of the why behind what we're doing. And in asking those questions often, I'm asking my guests some things that they haven't been asked before. And sometimes they haven't even really asked themselves. So uh, we can get into some interesting, interesting discussions. Uh, try and make it entertaining and, uh, and real at the same time. So thank you so much, Jude, for that, for that, uh, review. We're definitely going to keep them coming. I I know every week that we have a new guest on, I feel, uh, exhilarated and I, it it really adds something to my week on a personal level. So I, I myself am benefiting from it, uh, from the conversations and, uh, and I want to keep providing that for, for all of you out there. So yeah, keep the reviews coming. Uh, if you give me a five-star review, I'll do my best to try and get it on the air and recognize you. Um, and yeah, I mean nothing else I can say, but I'm grateful. And uh, and if you are one of my faithful listeners uh, who hasn't left a review yet, by all means, please do. Um, much appreciated. Now back to the episode with Brant Myers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of ways to touch a game. I, I agree with that. That's one thing that I talk about with the players that I work with, and I think competitiveness, like that el- that element of competitiveness. And you can you can package competitiveness wherever you want, right? I mean, at one point, that used to mean fighting. But it doesn't have to mean that anymore. That can mean on the back check. That can mean blocking a shot. That can mean getting in the dirty area, right? Like, there's a lot of ways to stand out. Even like a, a Kyler Yamamoto, I brought him up on this podcast before, right? Like, I notice him every night that he plays. Not because he's getting goals all the time, but because I can see that he wants it more than everyone else that he's on the ice with, yeah. right? Like, you can see it. You know, and, and he, and he, he intimidates with that pressure, you know, he's not going to intimidate you physically, but he intimidates with the pressure, you know, when he's out there, you know, that you got to be aware. And I just think that's a choice, right? As you said, like, that's a choice. I mean, to play that way, yeah. it's not a God-given talent. It's no. a choice.
0: No. And he's, uh, Yamamoto has been doing this for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just didn't start in the NHL. He's been proving people wrong for years, you know, and he, I think he thrives on that, you know, yeah. and. Um, I think he's what is he five eight maybe but he just plays so hard every night you know and and you got to love to see kids like that and and back when we played Jay like if you weren't six one or six feet it was like nah you know but now uh, you know guys that aren't uh, quite six feet are are, are getting uh, a shot
1: oh yeah lots of them are yeah, yeah I mean size so uh, if you can play and you can play with that edge, you know, like, I think that's, that's a really cool thing, but I mean, it's a way to stand out and I've been preaching it and preaching it and preaching that it's a choice. Like, yeah, work, right. Like that, that compete, like you said, the little, it doesn't have to be physically, but it can be just a, a, a pursuit of the puck. It can be a desire to want that puck, you know, to get in the forecheck. There's so many ways to stand out. And I can see it on the, at the NHL level, you can imagine how much it how much you stand out in junior, if you want to get noticed, you know, by, by bringing that element. Uh, you mentioned your father your father was a uh, underscored throughout the entire book you know the the different phases of the relationship you went through with him and 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 I think the interesting part of the evolution was you becoming a father um, and what an impact Chloe was for you in your life and one thing that I can connect the dots with is the impact of my boys and becoming a father and and what that's done for me and the choices that I make uh, on a day to day basis what from from your story and now through the lens of a father, how does your journey manifest now in that role with Chloe? How do you deal with Chloe? How would you recommend somebody else um, dealing with their kids?
0: Well, it's... I don't know. I, I, I guess I didn't really realize what unconditional love was until I had her. I didn't know what it would be like to Fight somebody literally. They, you know, they could stab me in the stomach and kill me. And there wasn't too many people on the planet that I would actually do that for. Prior to her <clears throat> teenage years are hard. I've raised her without a girlfriend in my life. Or yes, I mean basically, I've raised her as a single father with no manual um, other than what my grandparents sort of left to me. Um, and my, you know, my father had some beautiful qualities too, <clears throat> but. Uh, I don't know, man. I just try to, I think one of the things for her was that I didn't, I wanted to give her the gift of sobriety, which was um, she never had to worry about a guy like Brad coming home uh, with, you know, his eyes all red and hammered drunk and, you know, punches are being thrown. So <clears throat> um, I prided myself uh, the last 13 years of doing that. She hasn't ever had to question my um, dedication to her when I say I'm going to do something I do it um, I don't let her down and um, I hope that she I hope that she appreciates it I know the kids are kids and I didn't really appreciate my parents until again I had a child going oh that's why you told me it was so hard you know you don't know it when you're a kid though so hopefully yeah. one day she'll realize it.
1: you know You've been. You were very accountable. I guess is a, is the right word. That you know there wasn't there wasn't excuses. Um, I think that's part of probably where you got to today. If if you were living in a world of excuses, you might not be where you are today. And I think accountability is a big part of it. I, I assume with any with any redemption story. But I do like unpacking the idea that there is forces in our life that have impacts you know, that, that, uh, that matter, you know, and your, and your father potentially, do you think if like in that, in that, in those formative years, i say the 15, 16, 17, where it sounds like he probably knew what was going on a little bit, you know, like he knew it was happening there and he was trying to help you on that path. Like if that was a different example, if there was a different message or a different expectation, do you think that could have been a difference maker for you?
0: Probably not. I, I look back at what my dad did and the, you know, when he moved to Portland and I mean he moved to Lethbridge to he was he never missed a game. If we were on the road, he'd take his old van and he'd drive out to the country where he could get a good uh radio signal. (laughs) He'd uh go to the a bar called Thumpers and watch when I made the NHL. Back then you could only get it on satellite. He watched every game. I mean, no, my dad my dad was a rock star in my life. Um for sure, there were some things that we dealt with as I as I wrote about that were really hard on me and emotionally took a toll. But from the age of 12 until maybe 22, 23, um, man, oh man, I just had so much, actually a lot of fun with my dad. Like all the road trips in the old van and we never had a lot of money. So he'd always take me to a Chinese smork. Because it was like five ninety nine, all you could eat, you know, or get me a a dollar Slurpee after the practice. I remember, Um, put in fifteen bucks for gas to get me to a. a... Anyways, my dad, uh, he tried his best with what he had.
1: Sure, yeah, and I mean, it wasn't meant to beat up your dad. I mean, for me, it's like the growth of it, and and I and I mentioned, like, what my boys have. Like my association, like my personal association with alcohol has changed since I've had kids. And since I've known that they're like watching what I'm doing, you know, like I was, I like a beer as much as the next guy. Right. And there's different points where I like it. And I started to question of like, well, why, how come every time I'm in a social environment, like this is a prerequisite for me to have a beer, like, and, and, and if my kids are now watching me have that beer, every time that there's a social environment, like what, what, what am I coding into them? You know, so I'm, I'm I'm thinking about my actions in that, in that way now, right. Because of these little people that are, that are seeing somebody, right. That they, you know, they look up to me. I know they do. Right. And so I'm trying to make choices that are representing a healthy association with whatever the thing is. Um, So when I was asking that question, it's just like, now, if these guys, if I saw my my boys, you know, at 16, say they're in the WHL and I know that maybe they're running a little too late a couple of nights, you know, and I know what's going on, like I could maybe let that go and say it's part of the culture or there maybe could be a coming of Jesus moment then and being like, hey, this doesn't align with your goals and dreams. This isn't aligned with, you know, who you are and who you want to be and like have more of like that, you know, like a hard, hard and fast. And again, I don't know what your relationship was like with your dad, but judging from the book, from what I read, it sounded like it was it was somewhat okay or accepted that, you know, you were, you were doing what you were doing.
0: Yeah. I think as a, as a parent, the best gift that you can give to your children is um, walk the walk, you know, walk the talk, however you want to put it. It's like, I can't, I can't talk to Chloe about, you know, not drinking and driving, not smoking weed, blah, blah, blah. If, if her father's doing it. And that's why I had a hard time with my dad talking about, You know, being a top character person and, you know, being proud and doing things that, you know, that were just highly regarded as being a good character. And when he wasn't doing them, so I'm like, fuck you, dad. Like, you know, how dare you, you know, preach to me. So that's why, and I'm not perfect. I make mistakes all the time. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I do try and preach what I tell my daughter so that she can maybe one day go you know what like dad's dad doesn't do it you know and um he's not a hypocrite so yeah. at least I try
1: yeah yeah man that's that's yeah integrity right i mean and and i guess that that is what it what it like, that is what you just said right like saying having your words hopefully even your thoughts line up with your actions and i think if we can do that whether it's as a hockey coach, whether it's as a parent, whether it's just with the personal credibility for ourselves, right? Like, so we can wake up in the, in the morning and feel relatively good about being Jason Pudolin or Brent Myers, because we haven't lied to ourselves in the last, you know, 24 hours and we follow through what we say we're going to do. I think that's a really healthy start. Um, And yeah, I mean, and for me, and not that I, I mean, I wasn't off the rails or there was nothing, but like the kids, like for me, like the boys, it's like, it's so crazy, right? Like what that does to you, like the love you have for them and, the responsibility that comes with that. And then really understanding for me, the magnitude of like, we are all role models for somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, and it might not be your kids either. And that's something that I've really found as well. uh, The power of that within a team. And when I'm working with, with players now, I'm like you, there's somebody watching you. Mm -hmm. I promise you there is, there's somebody that you're making an impact on and what type of impact you want that to be. Um, And I think that that's pretty powerful, right?
0: And also we have to let our kids fall, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as much as that hurts us as parents, we have to let them fall and scrape their knees along the way because they're going to, it's just a. you know, I tell my daughter, honey, like, daddy knows you're going to make a lot of mistakes, like a lot. And you're probably going to repeat those, you know, but do you want to do it a third time? You know, how bad does it hurt? And that's the thing. It's like, at some point we have to, you know, whatever age it is, like when we moved away from home, you know, essentially the reins were taken off and yeah. we were working with a new family and, you know, we were, we had to make mistakes to learn and right. So, but hopefully they don't, they don't cut too, too deep.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do find that now and, and that's a great point by you, like the bubble wrapping of, of our kids, you know, like it's you know, something goes wrong at school. They don't quite quit the right grade or they don't make the team. And, you know, mom and dad's in there and yelling and screaming and like nothing can ever go wrong, right? And it's like mm-hmm. uh, the wrong, in quotes, is, is sometimes the absolute best thing. And lots of times it is the best thing, sure. right?
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> again, my path with what you've read is not the norm. Um, but. Uh, as far as like I can again just speak for my daughter and I just want her to be able to to call me and go daddy I'm you know I'm in a situation where I think I'd like to change and how do I do that well I'm in I'm in a position to hopefully teach her and help her because um, you know I've been through a lot in my life and uh, and I know how to uh, to turn things around when things are really bad and that's all I have my hope for my daughter
1: yeah, hundred percent. And that's where, I mean, I can echo that in the sense of allowing them, I, I call our kids, my wife and I joke sometimes that they're free range kids. Um, you know, not, not like in the fifties when my dad was running around, but like for, for 2021 kids, they're pretty free range. Like we let them, we let them go, you know, and let them explore and let them be adventurous and maybe make some mistakes. And, you know, um, like I say, scrape their knees every once in a while. And And the idea is when they do make those mistakes, or they they do fall, it's not a shaming, or it's not a you know you're bad. Or at least we you know we try our best. That's not the message. But it's like what what did you learn about yourselves? You know, like yeah. like that's always the constant underlying question. What did you learn from that? How do we how do we did you like the way that went? You know, do you want to how are you going to improve? And um, and I think if that's kind of a philosophy, and that's a philosophy I use with coaching too. To be honest, like hockey coaching is you know allow these guys. To be creative, to explore boundaries, to make mistakes, um, and then not classify the mistakes as wrong and and you're bad. But like, how do we? What did you learn from that? What do you have to get better at? What are we going to do next time? So, there's so many messages that I love about sports um, and metaphors through them. That you mean we can totally you know to teach and to learn and to grow and to get better. And I think that's for me. That was what was inspirational about your story is that you seem proud of where you are. And who you are, and no need to be apologetic for that, right like I, I think that's something that can be celebrated that this this journey of being a man has like God, that's changed that definition too, right I'm sure that's probably changed for you Maybe 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 that's the question like what what do you do you feel like who you thought you were supposed to be is now changed into what you know you are, what you've become or what you're proud of uh, being becoming?
0: I, I think it's a it's an ongoing journey i mean i always want to try and be better you know um but it wasn't you know looking back at all of those things that i was going through where especially my i think my fourth rehab when i when i was in for a year and um i just kept saying to myself what the what's going on why me again like and then i got out and then i got a lifetime ban, and then all of a sudden i'm uh i'm broke you know and i i can't get a car I'm, I'm selling used cars like what is all this about and obviously now looking at what the final product is it was like okay this is way bigger than me this is the all that shit and pain that i went through and i was going through or what i was going through hopefully for years to come will help somebody else and save them the pain that i that i went through
1: yeah, I mean, the identity of, uh, like, gender identity is has been a topic, right? Like, it's it's interesting, right? What what, what roles get bound up in being a guy, you know, whether, whether it's prescribed by society or self-prescribed by us or our environment, and I think that that role sure. of hockey player has evolved too, like, who I thought I was supposed to be or needed to be uh, to be a professional hockey player, to be good at it, and the competitive nature, you talked about testosterone, like, all that stuff uh, is like an incubator for a little bit of craziness, you know, like how many beers can you drink? You know I mean? How many girls can you sleep with? How many, you know, h- how hard can you hit? How many fights can you get in? Like there's like that whole, there's that whole interesting dichotomy of like what it means to be like a, a masculine, strong, tough guy. And I think that understanding that identity now in a different light, you know, being married, having kids, being a role model and like how how we can still be strong yet vulnerable. And I think that, I mean, your, your vulnerability, I think is an interesting twist on that gladiator type role. And I think maybe, I don't know, to me, you seem stronger in able to, to admit that than maybe not going there in the first place.
0: Yeah. It was again, just a process where, um, you know, I think being able to write the book, because of having 13 years clean and sober and it's been so long since i've acted that way that i'm like i don't care what people think like it's been over a decade since i've done cocaine and drank jack daniels and got arrested and like i'm not that guy so i wasn't necessarily um worried about what people would say now just that holy shit you know when you were young or in your mid-20s like You know, yeah, people I had an old lady or an older woman get a hold of me and say that she wanted to slap me in the head because she got to stage three in the book and she's like, Don't you're not gonna go to stage four. (laughs) Oh yeah, I'm going to stage four. (laughs) You know, but taking her own emotional ride where she's like, stop, you know, and I and there was no stopping. It was like, okay, let's hit this lifetime, band, and, and then let's even keep going after that, you know? So yeah. uh, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, man. It's, that is a word. And I think that's the part, like, that was the part for me. You mentioned at the beginning, like, that everyone in probably every household has some type of addiction or has an experience with it. Um I don't know if you can be kind of addicted. I, mean, I see it with my, with my kids in the video games, like there's, there's an addiction quality to them wanting to play, you know, and how they want to play. There's an addiction quality to me when I'm playing poker, right. That I've seen before. They don't want to get up from the table. You know, like there's, there are these, there are these different scenarios that, that I've seen with that, but it's, it's like to, to read your book and your story, like I can kind of get there, but I can't, you know what I mean? And it's like, how the hell, does that like how does it get there you know and it's like wow and i don't want that to be the disconnect because you know i mean just because people maybe can't get there like i think that there's so much amazing stuff about it and even about the getting to the bottom and pushing off like there's so many great lessons in there that are relatable without having to relate to you know the lengths that you went with with it you know what i mean Mm.
0: yeah if, as far as yourself goes, like you know, you weren't bit with the bug. I don't think. I mean, yeah, maybe you want to stay at the poker table a little too long, you know. Um, but hey, listen, I don't. I don't have a poker problem. I uh, I went online and 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 I buy in for fifty bucks. You know, I could buy in for a lot more. And when I lose that money, I don't. I don't buy in anymore. You know, like my dad couldn't do that. My dad lost everything on those VL, whatever those machines are called. Right. He'd spend all his GST money from the store and uh, he'd drink beer and, and pull the, pull the lever and lose everything. I didn't have that. See? So there are some, and I, so I couldn't really fathom what the gambling addiction was Mm -hmm. like. My dad could. So same thing with me and you, it's like, you know, you, you've been able to have an amazing life after hockey and a beautiful family. And, I know that your father and you were I believe still very close I think correct
1: yeah we're closer now than probably in a while I think everyone has their has yeah. their you know relationship issues and ups and downs but uh, yeah for sure I mean my mom and my dad are still big parts of my life for sure
0: so, um, so that's the other thing too is that that's why I believe that those um, recovery programs are very important because when you're talking to somebody like You know, let's say you had a cocaine problem. Well, shit, I could talk to you for five hours today and I know exactly what you're thinking and exactly where you're going with it and all that kind of stuff Um, versus you talking to me about, again, losing, losing house gambling. I just I I wouldn't understand.
1: Right. You you're I don't know what the right word is, but like that moment with your sister um, where you didn't remember uh, where that, it was February 18th, which I sent you the text the other day, which is my birthday, which is, you know, neither here nor there, but just kind of ironical. Um, and then you've been, you've been clean since then. And, uh, and then there was definitely a religious, uh, connotation to, to your sobriety. Um, I, I believe Jesus became a bigger part of that. Is that, is that like a huge part of, of the, of the turning of the corner or like what, you kind of, you touched on it for sure, but it, for me, it wasn't like a hundred percent clear if that is the reason, if that was the reason.
0: Yeah. It wasn't necessarily a religious thing because I'm, I'm not religious. Um, but for me, I do believe in a God and I don't know what the God looks like. I don't believe it's a, a man on a cane with a beard. I don't think that that, I do believe in angels and I do believe in special forces that may might be looking out for you along your journey. Um, something happened the morning of February 18th that has never happened to me before. Um, And I didn't have the obsession to drink or do drugs for around 10 years. Then I write about it in the book and people can read it for themselves. What happens if you stop going to a meetings and uh, don't take care of your recovery? You start to slowly get sick again. And, um, but for the most part, I've been 13 years of, uh, you know, not wanting to stop off at a liquor store.
1: Yeah. You, you, you touched on that. I think it was in the epilogue or whatever it's called there, like you're how close that was. And I mean, that was one thing that I was thinking in my head too, like, I wonder like what has been the closest since, you know, because even you talking about it, saying that it never really leaves I guess for lack of a better word you know I mean is is that an accurate way to put it like it's there but like you're you're operating on a different frequency
0: so and I don't deny the fact that I love it like I I love uh whiskey and um and cocaine as much as I love like maybe my you know favorite pizza or favorite movie or favorite song like I really enjoy it um but you know it's Pizza doesn't make me feel the way that uh, cocaine and uh, Jack Daniels does the next day. The big difference there, you know, I don't lose everything from ordering an extra large, but I'll lose everything from ordering a gram of Coke. So it's, it's just, it's way more powerful than anything I could. And I don't think it's ever going to leave me. I mean, you know, there's lots of times where I think to myself, I just want to go to an island and I want to cash in all my money. And I want to wave the white flag, and I just want to get loaded until I, you know, till I, until I'm gone, because yeah, I, I miss that feeling of being loaded and being drunk. you know. What so.
1: is it? Because um, I, I don't know a ton about AA. Uh, I do know that it was, it was started with that religious connotation in there, and I think that there's still a, a big component of, of that to it. No? no, no,
0: the spiritual program. Really, it's, it's, it's on whatever you consider to be. Any type of a higher power. A lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous use uh, the people in the meeting to be their higher power. It doesn't have to to be a certain god or. Just for me, I actually believe in. I believe in a a higher force, you know that I that I like to call God, Um, and for me, it stands for good, orderly direction. Mm
1: -hmm. There's a word that I use when I'm working with my clients, uh, and I call it just intention, and usually it's it's. You know, it's applied in, in in the case when I'm working with athletes is to, you know, what their goal is and, and staying present to, to what that is, you know, and, and if it's the NHL or making a junior team, then, you know, there's, there's ways to show up every day, you know, if you're conscious of them that are going to help you, you know, instead of just going through the day, but being intentional about your day. Is that essentially the underlying message of like why the meetings are so important and maybe even why this book is important and like to building these layers around you to insulate you, try to insulate you the best you can from, from that disease, you know, to give you reasons uh, to keep you on the, on the path that, that you're on.
0: Yeah. For me, God has a, God has a funny sense of humor. You know, it's like just when I felt like I wanted to get fucking loaded again, a book, opportunity is on my lap. And looking at the the book now, I mean, you know, for me to relapse would be, I think in my opinion, so selfish and letting so many other people down that need the hope you know, so the addiction side of me is angry that I wrote the wrote the book. Because, <laughs> because it uh it puts some clamps around the ankles. Um yeah. other side of it uh, i think the true self is is really happy what i did but the addiction doesn't like it very much
1: right you're super brave and super courageous one of the parts that i i was like i was in your shoes was getting ready for your first training camp there with la once you had been hired and you had to you know stand up there in front of the boys and you know tell them who you were and what it is you were trying to do or supposed to do um never having done it before either, right, which I think is, like, you know, you didn't really get into that, but, like, that is, like, that fear, right, and that, like, there's an expectation for you, there's, like, some kind of, I'm sure, imposter syndrome going on, like, am I going to be able to do this, am I going to be good at it, you know, like, um, but being brave enough to still step forward, you know, to do it, to, to get out of your own way. And to deliver that speech, and then to make it work, like I was super proud of you in that, because I can imagine how hard that was for you. Can you maybe like walk us walk us through a little bit of what that was like for you?
0: Yeah, it's. I think if it was a a different team, like let's say the Carolina Hurricanes, I wouldn't have been as nervous. I mean, because I had such respect for Daryl and Dean, um, and the Kings because they had they just won the Stanley Cup. You know, and there's these studs in the front row with Daryl. And I'm like, what's happening again? You know, one of those moments of, oh no! And then I felt like I was gonna f- almost faint. And I, the only thought was, dude, if you if you faint right now, like you're not getting hired. Like seven years of waiting for this job is over. You know, and I was just, you know, I, once I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not breaking the atom here. You know, I'm, I'm talking about my life and my story. I can't fuck that up. So, um, but still even saying that there's a something about that pressure when you're having 30 people stare at you and almost like, okay, okay, what do you, you, know, what do you have to say for yourself? Um, but I was way more comfortable in one-on-one meetings, like even me and you talking, like it's just so casual, you know, yeah. and when I had the, uh, my meetings uh, in training camp when they'd be in the office. Just shooting the breeze, you know. Um, but yeah, I can see why they say public speaking is like one of the top two or three things and phobias that people have.
1: Yeah, that's tough. I mean, your peer group uh, makes it tough, you know. Like we talked, I said earlier, the fear of other people's opinions. What are they thinking? You know, what are they going going to think? Um, and even helping people, like putting yourself like I found that uh, on a personal level to allow myself whether it's to believe or to trust or to stand in that position of saying i i want to help you or i can help you I can support you in this mm-hmm. there's a there's a touch of narcissism in that you know what I mean that that for me I was like well who am i to say that I can do that but it's you I mean you have to get over that because it's not about that it's not about me right and I think that's the thing with you is that it's not about you in this scenario it's about it's about the service and it's about the story and it's about how this may be able to help. Is that what, I don't know. Is, is that kind of how you got to that spot or do you have any issue at all putting yourself in that position?
0: No, I, I, again, like Jay, you know, you're a leader and you lead with, you know, you have, they have to look at you as a leader. Um, and that it's no different than when, you know, the coach in Calgary got fired and Daryl Sutter came in and Daryl Sutter has to lead that team. And they're looking for him to lead that team. The players are, you know, and your, your students that you have, they want Jason Perolin to lead them. And with this book, you know, I'm hoping that I can hopefully lead some people, whether it's a 14 year old or it's a, you know, somebody that's in their sixties that are struggling that can, or, or, or a father that um, like the gentleman that bought, bought uh, those thousand books, like, He never had a problem with alcohol or drugs, but his son did, you know, so it just, I I just think that if we're in a position where people are looking for us to to lead, we have to lead by example. That's all.
1: With with, uh, communication to me was, was kind of another underlying theme of your book, either the lack thereof or the inability to communicate, you know, either what you were feeling or, or, you know, the expression of help, maybe for lack of a better word, like, do you think that there's, when it comes to counselors and you you talked about that in the book or the therapists or wh- whatever that title was, a lot of people associate that there has to be something wrong with you, I think, or there's something wrong with me for me to go having this conversation or to ask for some help or, you know, there's some weakness or, or some disability that has to be assumed in over, in order to do that. Is that something we had to get out of the way of, in your opinion? Like to to not have to attach that label to somebody who wants to have a conversation or ask a question or say, Hey, I need help with this.
0: For sure. I, you know, we're, there's, there's always sort of a stigma of asking for help because, you know, then we're admitting to, we think we're admitting to ourselves that we're not strong enough, that we don't understand, that we don't know the right way. And we don't, we're human beings. We're not robots here. Like, you know, as we talk, you're going to scrape your, your knees, you know, but in order for you to let your guard down and actually really absorb um, someone that's been through it, someone that understands, um, I guess, the, the chemistry or the, the cycle of whatever you may be going through. Um, that's why, again, I revert back to the recovery meetings is because um, whenever I get asked to share after the, if it's only a two minute share, or if it's a 10 minute share, I feel great. Yeah, I don't know what it is. And there's a lot of those guys in the meeting that I've never met before. But it's something about sharing and getting it off your chest for me, and I know a lot of other people, there's it, some type of therapy in that, you know, so I don't see anything wrong or, you know, the embarrassment, like I went through of, of opening up to somebody.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's why I kind of asked it because either either it, it is a prerequisite some say of of like recovery, like to admit that you need help. But I think it's such a it, I think it's such a barrier to entry for help, you know, like to having to make that admit at the at it, that admittance, you know, but before it even starts, you know. And I think if we can just lose the labels of like bad, wrong, sick, not sick, like, and just have this idea that it's okay to ch- to talk, you know, it's okay to admit when we're not feeling good. It's okay to admit when we maybe don't have control of something or we don't have something quite figured out. And like, that's again, getting back to now the parenting hat. That's one of the things that I'm trying, or my wife and I are trying to chat with our boys about that. You know, these emotions are okay. You need someone to talk with them about if that, if, if that person is me. Awesome. If it's my wife. Awesome. If it's somebody else. Awesome. But to live in that, in your own self and you put it on, put yourself on an Island, and you don't have to get it out, right? Out, like how you said, you talk to these people in these meetings. I'm sure like just that that verbally communicating that, making yourself say it out loud um, to another human, th- there is there is therapy in that. And there is solutions in that, even for yourself, I think. D- do you find that?
0: Yeah, there's always a solution behind it uh, under the blanket, you know? uh, It's just a matter of, you know, trying to remove your ego enough to take to take it in and and to actually absorb it like i've got a couple friends that i that i'll call and i'll rant and i'll vent and i'll rave and they'll let me do it you know for five ten minutes and then they'll just say um you done i'll be like yeah you know and then change the subject yeah (laughs) so it's it's sometimes just as simple as um you got to scream, scream, you know, if you got to swear, swear whatever you have to do to, to sort of release that negative energy out into the world, go ahead and do it.
1: Yeah. When I talked about the kind of the, the, the gender politics of, of being a guy, you know, or even, I guess, obviously for, for women, for being, for being a woman, but I mean, there was a part of that, I think that was ingrained in us, or at least it was ingrained in me that real men don't, one, they don't have those issues, at least professional hockey players don't. And you wouldn't talk about it to another guy or a teammate even if you did like there was a there's a little bit of a weakness in there associated with that and that's the biggest bullshit in the world Mm -hmm. to believe that story i mean that's the wrong story uh i think
0: there's a there's a chapter in the book called tough guys do cry you know and i wanted people to understand that the player that you see on the ice you know the guy that's scrapping and punching people in the face and all this kind of stuff um that we do cry. And that we're just we're, we're human beings as well, and we have feelings and emotions. And um, I think it was important that I that I put that, that chapter in there to let everybody know that you know, no matter how big and tough you are, you know, you're, you're still just another man or another woman that 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 cries and has emotions and lives life like um, at least I do. And I, you know, I had to acknowledge that it was okay for me to cry.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, so, yeah, I, mean I, I I 100% agree with that. I think for me, my own personal evolution was allowing that, like I was fighting that, let's say, or guarding against it, right? From like the time I was 16 and showed up at, at, at WHR, even 15 probably in Penticton was really where it probably started, where I was like, okay, the armor is starting to build. Like you got to build this armor because you are not going to make it if things bother you. Right, so like whatever that insulation factor was, but the armor started to build. Right, that I started to build this persona, this way of dealing with whatever the adversity was, so I could get through it, uh, trying to emulate this thing. And that didn't involve crying, and that didn't involve you know the, these other things that would be more quote unquote feminine emotions, right? That, that I would associate with. I had this idea of what it took to be a to be a hockey player, a professional hockey player. Now, getting out of that, recognizing that no, like higher performers, they all have, you all have emotions. Like that's the thing, like being able to understand that you are an emotional being, whether you're a hockey player or a boxer or anything, right? That there are these emotions, allow them to happen and deal with them, right? Like instead of suppressing them, I think for me, that was like a massive transformational point, right? To say, no, no, this is okay. You're okay. It's okay. You know, like, as you said, tough guys do cry or, you know, whatever the title of the book was. You mean that's, that's allowed. It's, it, it should happen. You know, like you should have these emotions and there's nothing wrong with them. It's just learning how to deal with them, I think, and putting them in their proper place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Again, that's, that was the point behind the, the chapter was just said, okay, you've just read about this. killer. Yeah. Well, you get to read about a softer side of, uh, of at
1: this point. Yeah. yeah, man, it's like, you know, the char- i have a character course now that i've talked about here on this thing and it's one of the things that's kind of the backbone of some of the stuff that i talk with players about and it's interesting for me like who actually even signs up for it and, and what it means because i think th- there's a there's a hard part marketing something like that because you feel like well i'm not a guy with bad character why would i take this course you know what I mean, or I don't have character problems, and like, again, that's that's the inherent issue before you even start, right? It's not about being having enough or not having enough. It's just about like understanding that this is a skill that we can all get better at it, and to be able to like accept the idea that okay, this this might give me a new perspective, and I, I think it's interesting when we talk about these different types of traits and communication and addiction problems of like allowing there to be space to deal with it to to consume it, to metabolize it, and be able to use it. Uh, whether it's an athlete that's never had a beer in his life, or whether it's an athlete that maybe knows a few times that he's had too many, or whatever the case may be, that there's there is something for you in in uh, in these stories. And I think we've. I don't know. I mean, like. We could probably talk forever here, man. Like, where wh- where where do you see like wh- this book? Now it's out. We're a month we're a month in. It's selling extremely well. We talked about offline. Um, like, what's next for Brant Myers, and and where do you go from here?
0: Well, I think that um, once these restrictions with COVID start to uh, ease up a little bit, then I'd like to uh, talk to my publicist Ruda, and she handles all of the speaking engagements and that kind of stuff um yeah man, I'm just really looking forward to to keep spreading the message. I mean this is something now that um, I've realized within within a month that it's it's uh, touching some some chords somewhere in somebody you know and uh, my responsibility is to continually to stay sober and on track and then um, you know just figure out ways that I can continue to keep, talking about this and raising awareness and, and then the, like you talked about at the start of the podcast is the redemption and hope and i think that's what i when we look at the cover um my favorite part of that cover is the hummingbird that's flying to land on the stick yeah for hope yeah because i said hey listen you know i want to put something in there that was res- that resembles hope and so we put the the hummingbird in there That was one of my favorite parts of the
1: the cover. glad you talked about that because I thought that might have been uh, symbolic of uh, of Chloe potentially, because she was, uh, you know, she was that hope and that kind of that light that really galvanized you. I think, you know,
0: a lot of things in that hummingbird.
1: Yeah, Yeah. for sure. So, I mean, you 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 talked, and I'm just talking about how goal-oriented because you were goal-oriented with like wanting to get back to the NHL, and and that was something that you kept writing the league. You thought you had a voice in the league. You end up getting the job with the Kings, which obviously you're not employed with them anymore. Has that ship sailed for you? Like, is that still the holy grail land? Do you want to be back with the league somewhere? Or are you are you a, are you 100 okay with evolving into wherever this message takes you?
0: Oh yeah, I'm I again this isn't about money i don't i'm not a starving author you know um if the uh if the nhl itself or the union or that one of the teams wants to talk about maybe putting something together i'm obviously always willing to do that Mm -hmm. but i'm not waiting by the computer um and i wasn't waiting by the computer the phone when i got a call from la my life i've as you've read as some crazy, just no rhyme or reason, just uh, out of the blue, and I'm sure that my life will continue to have moments that are just out of the blue, you know. Yeah. I, I cherish those because that's what that's what life is all about—the unknown.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Direction is an interesting thing, though, too, right? I mean, having that direction and that focus of like what you want to get to sounds like right now your direction is like sobriety and I, I'd be an underpinned that's probably underpinned every single day which maybe that's the the overall direction I can relate to that just in my coaching business too is like I, I I thought that you know I'll have made it when I get to the NHL and I'm working with uh, prospects or I'm working as a you know developmental guy there because I do think that there's there's value and maybe that does happen one day but you know I let that go as being my idea of success and it's like who who can i help and in what capacity and if i'm doing that if i'm serving um that i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing you know and wherever that leads you know then that leads instead of having this 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 pillar focus because um, I'm fighting myself on that a little bit because I'm really like, I think there should be a goal. I think that we should be striving, you know, for something with a direction. Cause I do think that helps manifest what that thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to be flexible too, because we never know where we're going to end up, you know, cause there's going to be those moments of serendipity that you're talking about that all of a sudden, Hey, there it is, you know, and let's, let's jump on.
0: I would have never guessed in a million years that Lombardi would have called me that day, but it happened, you know, and then never would have guessed that you know, Nick Garrison from Penguin House, we get in touch, you know, uh, just things in my life that happened. Chloe wasn't planned. you know, like so many things that, that have happened. And I, but what I, the, the, it still goes back to the main, the main focus for me was staying sober. And as long as I stayed sober, good things started to just happen. You know, it's like, you want to talk about karma or positive energy, however you want to talk about it. I truly believe that a good soul that means well at times is rewarded with nice things in their life. And I don't mean a fucking Porsche. I'm just talking about like, you know, whatever it may be, it could be uh, being healthy for the day. You know, like my buddy just showed up asking me to sign a couple books and he's in a wheelchair you know he got in a motorcycle accident and he played hockey and now he can't walk and when i left that car i just you know i'm so grateful that i could have i could walk back up to my door you know and walk upstairs and go for a run he can't do that so just i think breaking it down daily to the my listen my needs will always be met my wants will never be met that's just the reality of my life
1: yeah. Yeah, and that le- that level of gratitude being able to live with that, you know, and keep that present. It's it's something uh that's been a topic of of different guests that I've had on one Mike Shaw comes to mind who's a friend of mine who uh who was a quadriplegic for like a month and I, there's some term for it, but he ended up being he ended up recovering and now you know he he's active, but he's just like that's been he's a keynote speaker now and been TEDx guy, but like that, that level of gratitude as, as like a high performance skill, you know, like that, the more we can connect to that feeling of gratitude and you just nailed it. Like there's so many different ways to connect to it, that it keeps us more present. It keeps us more hopeful, keeps us less anxious. You know, like there's so many things that it does. And, and again, that's, that's something that if we apply intention to that we can practice that every day and become, and become better at it. And I've said it on here before. Have you ever met anybody that's too grateful?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's hard to have a, be resentful when you have a heart full of gratitude. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's, you know, but it, it's a process. You got to work at it. And, um, I try to keep my life relatively simple.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Um, Thanks Corey. again. You I mean, I've, uh, read the book. I mean, I, I, did, it's, uh, for those listening, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know what the right word is. It's not, uh, it's not a complicated read. I mean, as far as like, you know, like it's, it's written in a, in a conversational way, you know, like the, the way you wrote it, uh, it's an, so it's easy to consume. The content isn't easy. It's hard. You know, uh, you, you, t- you, do a really good job of, of taking, taking the reader on, on your journey. Um, there's definitely points where we want to punch you in the face. And there's definitely points where we want to help. And, you know, we want you to fight through. And I think um, that's what makes it so compelling. And, and the fact that at the end, you know, you know, you're here, you're standing, man. You got a beautiful young daughter and you're and you're you know, sharing your message and, you know, and knowing you. I mean, I'm I'm such a massive supporter and campaigner. And, you know, I, I want nothing but the best for you. And and hopefully this this podcast gets 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 the message out even a little bit more and whatever they want to do or want this to touch you I mean i hope that happens because it's uh it's a great it's a great starting point and i know you're gonna do great things
0: thanks jason and uh it's just awesome to see how far you've come to i'm very proud of you as well and, and wish you continued success too buddy thank you
1: well thank you so much for spending the episode with us uh i i don't really know how to summarize uh, what what just happened there like I said, it was a heavy one for me. The book was heavy. Uh it was it was hard for me at times to read about somebody that, you know, was a teammate and, and all the questions of like how could how could this have happened or how could have how could a team uh you know allowed this to happen? And and having that conversation actually helped me with some of those because, you know, he was saying that he was you know, he was essentially hiding it. He was on solo missions. You know, he, he didn't want anyone to know and he became he became great at uh, and not allowing people to know what, what he was what he was doing. Um, there's so many layers to that, right? There's so many. I mean, if you once you've read the book, you'll understand. You know, I know our environment as young as young people matters. You know, our role models matter. What we're what we're exposed to um, impacts us. I am somebody who really believes that we have the opportunity to direct our ship and we are empowered uh, to make whatever we want of this life. Um, Brant is very accountable to that uh, in the book and in the interview. There is accountability. Accountability and integrity are two huge things that we talked about in this episode. Um, But there's so much more to integrity and accountability. We need role models. We need direction we need the perspective to know that we, there should be an expectation within us. Um, You know, there's, I just just go on and on and on. And and I think the main message here is though, like, where is Brandt now? How did he get there? Uh, What did he go through? What can we learn from it? How can we apply it to either ourselves or the people around us? And, uh, you know, I can't, I can't connect those dots for you, but I know there's dots that can be connected. Uh, I know there's, there's human elements of this story that, that just go through all of us because we're human. And, uh, and yeah, whether you've ever seen cocaine before, whether you've ever done cocaine, whether you've ever had a sip of alcohol, um, I don't think it matters. I really don't. I think that, uh, I think the idea here is that people can change, people are able to change, people can make the best out of shitty situations, uh, that it happens, that it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again, and you need hope, and you need support, and we need to be able to talk about it. And for me, I think those, are, those underpin the entire story, is that redemption is real people do shitty things and people can do great things and that same person uh, can live inside each and every one of us and having that humility to understand that uh, I think is step one and and step two is is allowing people the space and allowing ourselves to have the space to make some mistakes uh, and to learn from those mistakes and hopefully move on into a better place after that. So uh brent if you're still listening to this and if anyone else is uh you know like i said i'm proud of you i'm proud of what you represent i'm proud of you being honest with the struggle uh you know even on a daily basis that it's real that it's there um you're fighting a good fight my friend and uh you're a great example not only for your daughter which i know you hold so dear but for uh lots of other people out there myself included so um Appreciate you putting those words down on paper. I know a lot of people are going to benefit from them, and I hope people benefited from this interview. And until next time, play hard, keep your head up.